Welcome citizens, you're listening to New Amsterdam Radio, the podcast for creatives. Here, thinkers and doers always have a key to the city. The mayor is in, so office hours start now. Welcome citizens, New Amsterdam Radio starts now. So many different podcasts in your podcasting diet, but yet... You hang with me. It's good for you. It's like uh, celery or something way better than, than that. I don't know. <laughs> As I said yesterday on the bonus episode, I'm still in that birthday season, that birthday mode. So I'm enjoying myself. Hope you're enjoying yourself. If you rolled into the first week of summer, officially, not official, not unofficially, but officially, uh, let me know if you have any summer reading list or side quests that are on your docket. I would love to hear more about that. At New Amsterdam on Instagram, and a new underscore Amsterdam on that Twitter. On this episode, I'm hanging with Marlene Sharp. Marlene is an intellectual property maven helping to bring these things to the forefront. And if you don't know what intellectual property is, well, that's ideas in your mind. Mickey Mouse, Harry Potter, and in her case, Sonic the Hedgehog. So I had a lot of fun chatting her up about that, and you'll enjoy it too, especially if you have your own business, you're thinking about what that means for your own licensing if you do original characters or something like that. But enough of me rambling. It's now my chat with Marlene Sharp. Welcome back to New Am Sam Radio, the podcast for creative thinkers and doers. It is I, the mayor, Flobo Boys, in the mayor's office. Even though I'm suffering from a little of that June gloom, my guest today is bright as a ray of sunshine. We're talking about intellectual property. Well, this one does it in space. Please welcome uh, CEO slash founder of Pink Poodle, Marlene Sharp. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm just fine. How are you? Other than you know, June gloomy. <laughs> Yeah, you know, sometimes I get kind of like, oh, it's going to be one of those days. And then it, it becomes sunny at 1030. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, that's our June gloom. But we that, that's the closest we get to precipitation around here. So I guess we should be thankful for it. Further proving the Southland is basically a movie set. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you do a lot. And, and, and it's kind of fun to say that because this whole show is about slashes. But is there a succinct way you describe what yourself, what you do? A lot of times the question I ask my guests is at a party. So I was like, hey, what do you do? How do you like <laughs> actually phrase uh, your many, many roles? Well, I usually scratch my head and roll my eyes and hem and haw a bit. And then after that, I will describe myself as a producer, writer, creative executive. That that yeah, producer, writer, creative executive, and then sometimes the order of those gets changed around depending on what I'm yeah. doing. And that's that's it. That's it. Absolutely. You know, there's a lot of different layers to the entertainment beast that we were saying before we went live that I was a young plucky man with hair. I came out to Southern California to be a filmmaker. I was wanting to be an editor, but you were in a whole different aspect of entertainment, producing intellectual property. You know, that's something that I didn't know too much about, but what point would you realize like, well, this is a path I want to go down. I want to learn more about. Well, it was, it was my B choice after my acting did not ever support me as a full-time <laughs> endeavor. So yeah, my original dream was to be an Oscar winning actress, which I'm not dead yet. So could still happen. And Betty White is one of my icons because she had 
she's had several career peaks and valleys in her 90s like that was her decade so i'm seeing that in my future for for my acting career anyway but (laughs) but, um but as far as what i'm doing now i I was always interested in writing producing uh, theoretically but it didn't really hit me as a viable career option until uh, early on after I graduated from from grad school in musical theater and found myself temping in Los Angeles. I landed at a production consultancy actually called Renaissance Atlantic Films. And I was the temp fill-in assistant to a gentleman who was instrumental in bringing Power Rangers from Japan to the rest of the world. And he he was a, a producer, so he was a cre- credited as a consulting producer on a lot of uh, on all of the Power Rangers episodes. In fact, I think still to this day. But I would never, I, I never would have thought what he did was producing it because he was he was basically advising the show. He was looking out for Bandai, Bandai America, um, the toy the U.S. toy division, the U.S. division of the Japanese toy company. Bandai yeah. was the toy partner on um, Power Rangers for a lot of years. And he was retired from Bandai, but retained as a consultant. And he was looking out for Bandai's interest in the show, which covered so many different areas from contractual, you know, reviewing contracts to advising on the next seasons and how they would be adapted for West, excuse me, Western audiences and so forth. And so I always thought of a producer as, I don't know, somebody who would advise on scripts maybe and casting, um, just kind of receive awards when all the awards come (laughs) pouring in. That's obviously the person who is the awards acceptor. But uh, yeah, so, so Frank, been working for him, I worked for him, I ended up working for him for five years. Uh, so I started as an assistant, and then he only had uh, myself and another employee at that time. And she was, the other employee was director of development, and then she left. And then I became the director of development and the assistant. And so I learned a lot by being the only employee for all that time. And yeah. um and so I just kind of got stuck in that genre. So the or genres including animation, um, adapting foreign intellectual properties for Western audiences, kids and family entertainment, anime, that world. I never really a hundred percent got out of that. So a lot of a lot of years in the trenches of kids and family action oriented boys action entertainment with a a lot of it merchandise driven most of it merchandise merchandise driven oh oh yeah well, I, when i was a, a kid i think power rangers came to the united states when i was about eight years old and there was a time where like savannah entertainment had a stranglehold on fox kids it was like vr troopers mass riders they give you everything yeah 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 that's uh that's exactly right they so um so Heim Saban, the owner of Saban Entertainment, actually invested in Fox Network. So, so I'm, I can't remember what exactly the 
the breakdown of the ownership was, but um, but Saban was a part owner of that network, and then it was sold to Disney just the before Disney bought all of Fox. Um, Disney owned um, Disney bought the the Saban catalog, including Power Rangers, as well as all the, all the shows. And it, it, it was kind of a complicated deal because in Japan, all those properties were still owned by Bandai and Toei, the, right. the Toei being a, a, a famous, uh, iconic Japanese entertainment company. And, um, and, but then outside of Japan, there were these other stakeholders. And so um, everything had to be aligned or that, that was the goal. And it, it was a tough goal to stick to. So after I worked for Frank at, at um, Bandai, well, Bandai was essentially paying my paycheck, even though I was, a, I was technically Frank's employee, but everything we did was on behalf of Bandai. Um, I went to work at Disney in business and legal affairs because toward the end of my tenure with Frank, I, I was doing so much legal stuff for the mm-hmm. um, for because of Disney trying to sort through the catalog and and you know untangle all the rights to everything and so uh, I was also thinking of perhaps going to law school for entertainment law at that time and there was an opening as an assistant with the attorney who we had worked a lot with when I was uh, at Renaissance Atlantic so I went to work there for a couple of yeah. years afterwards. So a wealth of knowledge, real world experience with properties are, are not only like viable, but they're like ingrained to a whole memory generation, a generational memory. Uh, deciding to go into using that, rolling into a ball and go into business for yourself must have been fun, exciting, challenging. What made you decide to say, you know what? Working for people is cool, <laughs> but it's all about me right now. I'm going to go work for myself. Uh, well, it, it's what I call forced entrepreneurship because I lost my job at the end of 2019. So at the end of 2019, I was working for a company called Level 5, which is a Japanese, it's very much like Sega, the company that I worked for prior to Level 5. Um, Level 5 makes iconic video games like Yokai Watch and um, Nino Kuni and um, the Layton series. and they also, all their video game properties have TV series, movies, and toys that go along with them. And so mm-hmm. so I was working for Level 5's Los Angeles office as the head of production. So my job was working with all the TV series and movies and some social media that were related to the video game properties. And, and there's always a... Um, when it's a cross media franchise like that, there's a lot of, I guess, synergy that is supposed to happen, you know, aligning the various language versions together and the, because there does, there's quite extensive adaptation often that goes on with the various uh, um, iterations for different countries and territories and, and so forth. So um, anyway, I was working out of Los Angeles, doing that. And then at the end of 2019, level five decided that they didn't want any, anybody working for the company outside Japan anymore. So they had three international offices and they closed 
the LA office, the Hong Kong office, and the Seoul office. So that was the end of my time with Level 5, which was very sad. And sure. um, so I, I, unfortunately, I didn't have another job waiting for me. And I had started the Pink Poodle Productions website a few years prior as a glorified resume, more or less, a, mm -hmm. a, a portal to put uh, samples of my work and just so many times when you interview for jobs, there's a request, where's where's your website or where's your portfolio or demo reel or what have you. So I had, I had made that. And uh, so I just thought, well, okay, Pink Poodle Productions is now going to be my full time job. I've just, I've just Absolutely. hired myself. And uh, I'm also the CEO. Yay. <laughs> I'm the CEO. I'm the founder. This is my coworker here. She's also the chairwoman of the board. Uh, Blanche, Blanche Dubois Sharp is the, um, <laughs> the poodle of Pink Poodle. She's a poodle Bichon mix. But um, for the purposes of Pink Poodle Productions, she identifies as a poodle. <laughs> and she, uh, yeah, so, so, so she's always here. So I had to incorporate her into the, into the goings on. So yeah, so I, I just started telling everybody that I knew that I was open for business. <laughs> I was taking pro consulting projects and then meantime, applying for jobs through LinkedIn and having meet and greets and just leaving no stone unturned because no matter what kind of labor market it is in the rest of the country or the world, it's always a tough labor market in the entertainment business. I cannot ever remember a time where it was like, we jobs for everybody. Just, <laughs> just come on in. Uh, maybe like in 1900 at the beginning of show business or the right. beginning of, of, of screen entertainment, uh, but not, not in my lifetime. So, um, so yeah, so I, I just, I took on tons of projects and um, so actually I am full time with another company right now. It's called Rainshine Entertainment and mm -hmm. it's an Indian company. Well, the headquarters is in India, but there is a team of us that works out of Los Angeles and they had hired me as a consultant at the end of 2019. And then I worked part time as a consultant and then they hired me full time at the end of, uh, I mean, no, it was February of last year. So I am very fortunate to have full-time employee now, but uh, employment now, but I still keep Pink Poodle Productions. It's, 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 it's still in the ether because yeah. one never knows what one's future will hold. And, um, and I did work with a ton of clients and, uh, I, I have relationships and, and so forth. And so, so pink poodle has not gone away. It's just uh rainshine takes up a lot of my time now because I'm a full timer for rainshine. I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that uh, two things. The first thing about the uh, inadvertent entrepreneurship uh, for those who don't know my story, I was a corporate guy. I was in, I was in marketing branding management for a bunch of things, test and measurement, personal care products. And when I was uh, let go from my job at Lone Depot and I would always say their names on air, <laughs> they were the last ones, daddy. Um, I basically <laughs> went to my garage, found my DJ equipment and launched my DJ business because I wasn't looking to be a business owner. It was just happened to be there. So DJ Flo Beto does your, 
their weddings on weekends. <laughs> and during the week, it was like, what, what do I want to do? So I, I do think that there's nothing that's kind of inspiring, even though you are full time with Rain Shine to say, hey, look, I, I morph this. You can either call it a parachute, you can call it a sidecar, you can call it a, a, a second opportunity. As being a CEO of two companies, Jack Dorsey did it with Block and Twitter is definitely right. possible and doable. But that to me is so cool that you decided to go ahead and, and bet on yourself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I guess it was a blessing in disguise. Sometimes it feels more like a blessing and more sometimes more like a disguise because it's it's <laughs> tough. It's, it's tough, especially trying to collect payment from people and not not rain shine, but sure. a lot of other smaller clients and 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 entities that maybe were struggling during COVID. I mean, that's the one thing that I find the most challenging as an entrepreneur, um, because I I have been stiffed a lot, and I I can't I, I don't have like a, a a force to go out and chase down payment. It's just me. So the longer it takes me to chase down payment, then that's taking my resources away from doing actual work or pursuing actual work. So I have to just let it go. So that's, that's not an open invitation for people to come forward and to try to, yeah. try to stiff me, <laughs> but right. it is so, it's so hard. So it's just such a relief to have a company that to, to work through because it makes it, it just makes it easier just to rely on a paycheck. It, it is funny because uh not funny it's hilarious getting stiff no I, it is it is interesting because we we as entrepreneurs we say hey we're a ceo but you're also the coo the chief revenue officer the chief technology officer there's so many hats that we have to wear and so the the fact yeah. that that's a challenge or a friction point as they say in marketing uh is totally understandable because you're, you're juggling 25 hats at once yes yes so you you know exactly exactly the struggle and um i I suspect even with high profile CEOs, I mean, of course, we hear all the success stories and the bad behavior when fame becomes so, uh, so taxing on folks like Elon Musk and whatever. <laughs> but, um, but for most of, of CEOs and, and people who start their own business, it's a struggle. And I think that there is some kind of crazy statistic about just the failure of small businesses, like some crazy way over 50% of businesses that are startups, not like the glamorous Silicon Valley high profile yeah. startups, but just a startup in somebody's garage who's not trying to get tech investment. Those fail and it takes a lot of hard work to just just to maintain um, a comfortable living from yeah. from that kind of a business. Uh, I got to talk about some of the the past wins, just some of them, because you have a lot of wins uh, going going in research. I mean, I want to be winning like Marlene Sharp right here. Let's be honest with you. What? Uh, oh my goodness. We, okay. we we both have a connection that we both appeared on panels at Comic Con, but your panels actually have people show up, which is great. Uh, and we also <laughs> used to work at Sega of America, which you know I I want to ask you this question specifically about Sonic the Hedgehog. You were a consultant on the movie in 2020. I was a big Sonic fan. I think uh, the first game came out when I was six years old. I'm going to be 37 in about 10 days. <laughs> That's how old I am. Happy birthday. Uh, oh, thank you. Hey. But <laughs> yeah. There hasn't been a, such an example about the rehab of intellectual property 
than Sonic the Hedgehog? Because there were some dark times there, Ms. Sharp. Dark times. What was that like? Being on there. the team to bring Sonic back into being cool again? Can we say that? Yes. Yes. That was um that was our cross to bear back in 2015 to the end of 2017 when I yeah. worked when I worked there. And um just to be clear on my, so I was hired as um, my, my title was producer TV series at Sega. And so it was a catch all title for like all the things I would conceivably produce while I was there. And, but my main task was working on the second season of Sonic Boom, which was um, the Cartoon Network. Well, it was Cartoon Network in the US. It was on different networks in other countries, but um, second season of, of Sonic Boom. And then Sega had gone through a major restructuring for its North American operations in 2015. And so essentially they had had an office in the Bay Area, which had been around for 30 or so years. They closed that all down. They laid off like 100 people and they decided to start all over again in Burbank because things with the movie, the movie was in development for like 10 plus years, by the way. And um, mm -hmm. so at that five point five year mark, it was looking like, okay, maybe this will actually happen. So let's relocate. So Sega's thinking was let's relocate to Burbank to be closer to the movie people because that was a totally separate deal. Um, and Bl Blanche is, is uh, chiming in because she, she was ha had a front row seat to all that drama. Um, yeah, Chair down uh, to the board. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so, um, so yeah, so so Sega started all over again in 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 Burbank with a team of fourteen people, and I was one of the fourteen people who who started. And then I, it was like all hands on deck because they had gone from such a robust team in the Bay Area down to a skeleton crew of fourteen people, and it was the eve of Sonic's twenty fifth birthday, so the expectation from corporate headquarters was that we would have this spectacular year 2016 extravaganza celebrating Sonic. And there were no plans as of like June of 2015, there was wow. nothing, zero planned. And so, um, so the reason why I contributed at all to the first movie is that they're just, <laughs> it was just like a free for all to organize everything and, and, um, and get back on track from that major move from that and restructuring. But, um, but you won't see my name on the credits for the movie or the first movie, second movie, maybe not any movie. Um, my work was, uh, it was just something that I, you know, I contributed to all kinds of aspects of the business business and legal affairs happen to be one of them. So like reviewing the contract between um, Sega and the movie team, because it was a big contract and it wasn't being run out of our office. So I, I if you ask a, lo a lot of the people who have big top of the marquee credits on the movie, they, some of them know who I am, but uh, a lot of them like Neil Moritz has no idea. Uh, right. Tim Miller, Jeff Fowler, they don't know. But I was working on the movie long before uh, Tim Miller and Jeff Fowler came into it. So, but, you know, that's just what happens. There's, 
with movies, there's politics and bureaucracy and mergers and acquisitions and people get lost in the shuffle. So I was one of those yeah. casualties. Well, you're not lost to me because that was the last movie I saw before the, the shutdown. It was like Valentine's Day oh. of all days I went. And I was like, this is yeah. cool. <laughs> probably these, yeah, that's pro probably one of my last movies before COVID <laughs> lockdown too. Yeah. Right. Thanks, and Lance uh, too. Lance too. <laughs> well, that, well, that was then. And this is now. You're currently working with the young captain in an email franchise at Rainshine Entertainment. But it has a blockchain twist. Can you tell me more about it? Yes, yes. So there, so I, I am not very well versed in Web3, but I will explain what I know so far. I don't um, know either. So, it's fine. <laughs> so, so there are basically two Web3 components to Young Captain Nemo. So at, at its core, it's a book trilogy, a middle grade book trilogy by a very talented author named Jason Henderson, who's a friend of mine. And so... Um, through Rainshine, I acquired the book series. So Rainshine acquired all the, the media rights for, for Young Captain Nemo and set off to make an animated movie trilogy based on the three books. And then um, just with the evolution of Web3 and um, blockchain technology, uh, the decision was made from our chairman, actually, to incorporate... Rain, so Rainshine came up with a proprietary blockchain platform and that they've named Rainblocks. And so it so young Captain Nemo is is launching that platform. So um so there's an uh what is how does it how is it phrased? A crowd a, a, a crowd community round. That's it. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. So when startups are raising yeah. money and, you know, they'll go to high net worth investors and this and that, but then often there's a bit of the fundraise that's carved out for community. And so, so that is part of what we're doing, a community round, um, not just for young Captain Nemo, but the, for the whole of Rainshine. And then there's also plans to incorporate NFTs and um, and have that be part of the licensing and merchandising component of of the franchise because almost all, if not really all, of kids entertainment or kids and family entertainment is meant to sell stuff to kids and families. That that's really where the monetization comes in and. The profits it's not necessarily in making the content for the screen i mean so, sometimes that happens but yeah. it's re really meant to drive consumer behavior and um and sell products like toys and video games so so uh, so we'll we'll have that built into young captain nemo as well but nfts is now part that that's part of the plan and if people want to follow Cap Young Captain Nemo now, how can they engage with the? Is there any social media handles they can look up or yeah. websites? Well, the website for that's dedicated to um, Young Captain Nemo is just ycninc.com. So the letter is ycninc.com, and then you can find all the social handles on there. And there's there's even information on there. I think about the. Um, the community round of fundraising. And then there's also a lot of information on the Rainshine website. So rainshine.com because Rainshine is a large 
conglomerate with a lot of different smaller companies under its banner. And probably the most, um, the one that has the biggest reputation is called Weird Ass Comedy. And it is the production company of Veer Das, who is oh wow a very well known comedian. So Veer Das is one of my coworkers. <laughs> oh great! Well, as a stand up comedian, I think Veer Das pushes like the visual aspect of his comedy special. Check it out if you have it on Netflix. Uh, I love his work. Oh yeah, yeah, I I love Veer too, and um, it's always delightful to get to interact with him and his team. And he's doing so much outside. He he's like the Kevin Hart of India, pretty much. But outside of India, he's every day. Uh, his his profile grows and grows. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I got to do some cross promotion real quick. Flobos on Netflix, a sister show of this show where we go through comedy specials. Veer Das's last few specials are on the can. Check it out when you can. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh I'll show. tell him. <laughs> <laughs> so before I get you out of here, I got to ask you just a couple of personal questions. Uh, you can always okay. pass if they're too intense, but I, I can guarantee you they're not. Okay. Um, but I need to know this because I, I am a former uh, uh, snack food junkie. I kind of still am a snack food junkie, but I don't want to admit it. But what is your favorite snack food? What's your favorite junk food you have? On? Well, it's supposed to have a kind of healthy component to it, but I do eat a Cliff Bar every day, at least one. Okay. You know Cliff Bars? They're yeah, supposed yeah. to be sort of helpful, right? Um, sure. I try to stay away from junk food, but that is my guilty pleasure. I love Cliff Bars. <laughs> What's your favorite flavor? I'm curious. Chocolate chip. Oh, yes. See, you and I, we're lockstep. <laughs> <laughs> I love chocolate, and chocolate just the very, the fundamental, just the yeah, basic chocolate yeah. chip. What does a day off look like for you? What do you do in your day offs? Naps. That's it. <laughs> That's pretty much it. I am the queen of naps. I'm a connoisseur of naps. Um, yeah, that that is my number one leisure activity. Are, are you like a, a power nap person or all day nap kind of person? Or afternoon I nap? like to take, well... You know how babies take a morning nap and an afternoon nap? That's It's not necessarily yes. staying in bed all day, but, you know, you get up early enough, you need a morning nap. And then you yeah. eat a decent lunch and maybe do some stuff. And then, then you need a late afternoon nap. So that's the ideal for me is a, is a morning nap, just, just like a little baby. <laughs> I always tell people, my friends, that I'm I'm afternoon pick me up years old, but nothing beats a good nap in the <laughs> afternoon. That exactly. Is <laughs> exactly. <laughs> With the lockdown and everything, when was the last time you were on vacation, and where'd you go? Oh well, um, well, I went to a conference in Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago, so I went to the licensing show. Although that was a business trip, but it was hugely fun. I got to go to the mob museum. I don't know if oh, you're yeah. familiar with it, but yeah. it's so great. I want to live in the mob museum. It's like that, this cool old post office. And um, I was actually there re researching some podcasts that I'm working on for Rainshine. So not related to young Captain Nemo or the kids stuff that I'm doing, some actual grown up stuff. Yeah. So uh, the mob, mob museum is an excellent research resource so I, I went there but i ended up having a fabulous time and bought shirts and all that and then yeah so i i, I did that and um and then 
last year when the first time everybody thought COVID was over, when vaccines <laughs> came out and everything, um, I felt like indestructible after that first round of shots. So I went to Houston to visit my brother and his family and my and my parents. Um, my parents came in from New Orleans and we all met there. And then I went to a film festival in Austin after that. And so that was, I was like, woo, back to traveling. Not really. Right, <laughs> then yeah. everything shut down again. But um, yeah. yeah, so I've been very fortunate to travel. That Have, have you traveled since? Um, mostly for work. Uh, I would say with, with my jobs at Spotify, I've, I've done um, uh, Texas, I've done uh, Austin, um, Dallas, excuse me. I've done Vegas, because it's a quick trip here from Los Angeles, a quick tour ride. I think the first time I went on a vacation was this past May, last month. I went to Formula One. I'm getting into that. So I went there in Miami, saw the, the whole world descend. Oh. It was really cool to be around celebrities. But I've noticed I'm doing things open air still. Like I go to baseball oh, yeah, games yeah. and sit in the rafters. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, it's over, but not over. You know what I mean? It's yeah. Well, <laughs> the licensing show that I went to was at the Mandalay Bay Hotel. And um, so much of Las Vegas is indoors. I would say like 99%. Even like walking from hotel to hotel is indoors. Mm -hmm. And um so i was indoors most of the time wearing my mask even though i'm four times vaccinated i'm still a maniac about that and mm -hmm. i'm very glad that i did because it turned out that that was a super spreader event and so many colleagues and people that i know in the business are either sick with covid now or they were sick and uh yeah that's what happened so i i agree if you're gonna if you're gonna socialize it's best to do it outside yeah absolutely were there any kind of trends you saw this year at the show was it kind of like oh we're we're done with apocalypses could be this do one now it's bunnies <laughs> like what and you guys covered well i'm happy to report that sega has much better real estate on the show floor than ever and sega had a big booth and i was able to reconnect with a lot of my former co-workers who i hadn't seen in a while and they were just like the, the the prom king or prom queen because also um, another Sega company so Sega actually owns a lot a lot of different companies and they're in a lot of businesses but one of Sega's uh, smaller companies is called Atlas and it's a it's a also a video game company one of their famous games is called Persona um, oh yeah, Persona. yeah 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 and so um, Anyway, for the first time, Atlas was taking active part in licensing shows. So before, even when I was at Sega, I would get a lot of calls from people, just friends in the industry, asking me about the rights to Persona to make TV series and movies. And, you know, they have some great games, but they were, there was a, that wasn't part of their business plan. Just, it was mostly game focused and that was it. But now um, I think because there's this huge demand for everything Sega because of Sonic's resurgence, all those requests cannot be ignored. So there was a lot of focus on the, the, cat, the old catalog properties from Sega and the Atlas titles. And um, so that, <laughs> that was a trend. And I, I mean, a trend that was very, much on my radar and um there just seemed to be a lot more uh 
activity around video games and also Japanese companies, which are two things that are on my radar anyway. And I hadn't noticed that much of a presence as, as I did this year. This year, it just seemed like um, the, the companies that had participated before, whereas in the past, they might have been more under the radar, maybe quieter. There were yeah. big booths and displays and special events and so forth. So I guess that tells us something about the industry and right. what people liked, what kind of entertainment is popular and what kind of uh, stories that people want to see on the screen. Yeah, that's definitely true. I feel like the, the lockdown was uh, the great uh, apple cut heart being upset, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I want to thank you so much for being on the show, New Amsterdam, Maria, the podcast for creatives and doers like yourself. If someone wanted to connect with you, just you know, pick your brain about your industry, how to go about doing that. Well, I am on LinkedIn and I am a maniac on LinkedIn. So that is the best place to find me, just going nuts on LinkedIn, but in a very Marlene nuts way. So you, <laughs> you won't see any offensive posts or anything. It's all about finding work and networking and so forth. And then, and then I'm on all the other, the usual suspects, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and um, my website is pinkpoodleproductions.com. So you can see a little gallery of um, greatest hits <laughs> of me <laughs> and, and yeah. Blanche, of course, and Pink Poodle Productions. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Lobo. The pleasure. Hey, before you go, just want to say my book, Graduation Day, Life Lessons from the Real World, is now available on Amazon. You know, the concept of the book comes from when I graduated college and I wasn't impressed about my commencement speaker and what he had to say. And I said, I had some life experiences. Let me go back in time to a proverbial time machine and tell young for me things I learned as an adult. I share stories about the time where I almost died riding a motorcycle or the time where I had no money but decided to do a wedding in Italy, DJ a wedding in Italy to save my business and much, much more. Graduation Day, Life Lessons from the Real World is available on Amazon. Just look for me at Flobo Voice. Thanks so much for listening to New Amsterdam Radio. Learn more about the show at newamsterdam.com. That's K-N-E-W Amsterdam.com. Until next time, this city is yours.